Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Self-Publishing Tips and Tricks Show, a series designed to give you insight into the world of self-publishing and marketing your books. I'm Shannon, writing under the pen name of SC Houston, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Ben Pick. And I'm Morgan Lee. And we're here today with award-winning indie author and poet Christy Stratos. We're going to ask her questions about her self-publishing journey and how she markets her work. But before we jump into the interview, I want to ask you guys about points of interest that you may want to talk about or any news. And at this point, we are still at the end stage of our batching our interview. So this episode won't come out until October, although we're recording now in June. We'll keep that in mind as we talk about what's going on. Yeah, I am not planning anything that far in advance. I have my debut novel coming out August 6th, but by October, I have no idea where I'll be with that. So just watch my weekly episodes, Ryan to Write, every Monday night at 7 p.m. on YouTube. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, same for me. I don't have anything planned out that far. I'm still working on getting books two and three of my trilogy ready for release. So that should be coming out sometime in these next couple of months. So look forward to that. And then as usual, just uh, stay tuned into my YouTube channel. And yeah, that's it. So that sounds like a lot of great things happening though. But Ben's book is going to be out. You're going to hopefully have a couple books coming out soon at that same time or somewhere in that time period. And we're about to have the AuthorTube Writing Conference, which is the first of its kind coming in July. Hasn't happened yet as of, of recording this episode, but as of this airs, it will have gone live. You can still catch replays of all of the presentations of the AuthorTube Writing Conference by going to the website, authortubewritingconference.com, where the links to the playlist will stay up there for the life of the writing conference. And we'll also have already announced our 2023 dates for anybody who's interested in presenting. Now let's talk about our guest author today. Christy Stratos is the author of the Victorian era historical suspense series, The Dark Victoriana Collection, and The Gas Lamp Dark fantasy novel, Grimoire Society of Dark Acts. Also a poet and a short story writer, Christy has been published in anthologies, literary journals, and magazines, and she's given presentations for writing organizations and at writing conferences. And maybe we could get her for next year's conference at the AWC. She owns her own editing company, Proof Positive, where she works one-on-one -on -one with authors as well as with small presses as a freelance editor. And she has enjoyed working with a rising press as an acquisitions editor. Christy currently co-hosts the Once a Week on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, an interactive video cast lurking for legends with award-winning epic fantasy author Richard H. Stevens. She was the original host of the well-received podcast Writer Showcase, rated number one video cast of 2019-2020 on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And welcome, Chrissy. Would you please take a moment to introduce yourself and talk about anything we missed? Well, thank you so much for the great introduction. I really appreciate it. And I'm so happy to be here with all of you. I enjoyed this show. So it was really cool to be on it. So, you know, you did a great job introducing me. I don't think I have a whole lot else to tell you, um, except that I am a multi-genre author. I've published, you know, in um, different places, as Shannon already mentioned, all different kinds of genres, but I really mainly stick to Victorian era, historical suspense, and historical fantasy. That's really what I would say I'm known for if you could say that so yeah that's you did a great job i have nothing to add <laughs> well thank you um and you know i i wasn't sure what gas lamp meant so when i saw that i was like oh i need to go look this up and i was like okay so it's, it's basically i guess stories are set in the victorian era from what i understood the definitions i looked at so i was like oh that's really interesting so i'm glad i learned something new in just trying to get to know you <laughs> That is really cool. Yeah. I was actually doing a little bit of a test on that on Twitter, asking people what they thought it meant and trying to figure out if anybody is very familiar with it. I mean, there is a whole audience for it, of course, but outside of that audience, do people know what it means? And so I was trying to see if they think it's steampunk or whether they think it's just Victorian fantasy, which is what it is. And, um, you know, it's kind of mixed. So people, um, sort of readers have both impressions of it, but it leaves a lot open for what you're going to write for sure. Yeah. And, and that was one thing that I saw one of the definitions that said it is not steampunk. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So before we jump into questions of self-publishing and marketing your books, could you tell us a little bit about your journey into self-publishing your very first book? Yeah. My first book came out in 2015. That was Anatomy of a Darkened Heart. And that one was part of the Dark Victoriana collection. And, um, you know, I had always, I'd been writing since I was a kid. I absolutely, it's the, the one thing I've always absolutely loved. So I majored in English literature uh, in college. And it's funny because I had the strangest impression. I have no idea why. All the way, I wrote all the way up until college and I had written a couple of novels um, and I thought, well, if I don't get them published before I go into college, I'll never be able to publish them. That'll be the end for me. And I have no idea where I came up with that. That was so random. <laughs> it's very strange. So I went into college thinking, well, that's it. My publishing journey is over now at the ripe age of 18. <laughs> so, um, you know, I found I couldn't stay away from it. I actually started out in a different major and switched over to English Lit because it's what I love. So no clue what I was going to do career-wise. Had no 
interest in journalism or anything. So just wanted to do it as something I loved. And um, I was stunned when I wrote some poetry and submitted it to a contest to win the contest and was like, really, are you sure? So, you know, I started to realize, you know, other people might like my writing as well. I was too shy to share it with anybody but like my parents up to that point, really too shy. After college, I started writing a bit more, some different stuff and submitting it and it was getting accepted. And again, I was like, huh, that's interesting. So <laughs> this is when I started really you know, becoming interested in writing a new novel, you know, not revamping the old stuff, but writing a new novel. And I discovered the self-publishing community. And that is really how I got into it. I know we're about to talk about another question. I don't want to trample on that one. So um, that's really how I got into it, really just kind of like a rolling thing. And I ended up writing a novel and loving it. I wasn't sure if I could at that point. I thought, of, you know, maybe I can only do short fiction. No, I was able to write the novel and, uh, and it just kept rolling from there. So that's really how I did it. It's so funny. I had a similar experience where I found a letter that I wrote to my brother about how when I was just starting off writing and I was going off to college and I said, oh, you know, I'll finish this book by the end of the semester and I'll be able to send it to you real quick. And uh, I, I didn't send him the finished book until this past month. So uh, we don't need to go how many years it's been, but it has been uh, quite a few since then. So... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, how did you make the decision to self-publish versus traditionally publishing that first book? Yeah, I, well, you know, like I mentioned before college, I had thought, you know, I only knew about traditional publishing. And back then, that was when I first started college, it was like 2005. So at the time there was vanity presses and, you know, I hadn't really looked into self-publishing at all. I graduated and over time, you know, I started to write and like I said, get into the self-publishing community. And that's when I found people talking about self-publishing and that you could do it yourself and you you didn't need anybody else to be part of, well, not be part of the process, but to do it for you completely, publish the book. And I was wow, that's really cool. That's amazing, actually. Do you mean I don't have to submit to a publisher who's going to tell me to change everything? <laughs> that's, that's something I'm very interested in. You know, so I had written that first novel and I was thinking most of the time these you know, historical novels are longer than what I have written. It was just above 50,000 words. It's not that long. You definitely have longer novels for historical fiction. And I was thinking I really didn't want to be told you need to insert more like violences in right now. <laughs> you need to insert more of that, you know, whatever it might be at the moment that is really big in books or, you know, media or whatever in general. I didn't want to be told I had to adjust the story to fit something, you know, popular if it doesn't really work for the story. And the story had already been edited, you know, been through a couple rounds of editing and everything. It was really at the best that it could be. And I was thinking like, I just don't want to be told add 20,000 words onto this, however you're going to do it. You know, haven't we all read books, even traditionally published that you could cut a third out of it. Um, it doesn't need to be there. So I said, okay, you know what? Self-publishing sounds really good to me. I don't have to like bend to anything. I don't have to make this book something it's not. I'd certainly heard some stories, not all, of course, but some stories of authors who had said, you know, oh, the publishing agent changed, you know, wanted me to change this so much that I didn't even want to write anymore. And I thought, I think I'm going to go the self-publishing route. So that's actually how I made the decision. Did you have any misconceptions about self-publishing before you published your first book? I did. I had this misconception at first that it was going to be easy. That was cute, right? <laughs> That's adorable. Um, you know, I had been on the outs, like outside of the um, self-publishing author, you know, community at first because I was coming in as a reader, of course. And I was just like, wow, this is an amazing community and I really like it. And then I started to look at it from the perspective as an author and joining in as an author. You know, I started hearing what it actually entails. You know, you're going to have to, you know, hire your own cover artist um, if you're not good at making your own covers. And I was not. Um, you're going to have to hire a formatter if you're not good at that. All that kind of stuff. Editing costs a lot of money, things like that. Quickly, I learned it's not that it's easy. <laughs> Definitely not that it's easy. And you do have to hire people to help you or at least work with people that you trust. So this is not when we say self-publishing, it's not a one person show. Obviously, you know, you need a lot more people. And when I first entered into it, I was like, wow, there are actually a lot more steps than I thought there were going to be. I thought it was simple, not thinking really about what does it take to get it from point A to point Z. Then once I got into it, I started to realize 
realize, you know what? I, I thought I thought at first formatting is going to be easy because I'm really, really familiar with Word and stuff. And it was not. And I spent like two weeks the first time trying to format my story, just trying to understand, you know, what advice out there is right? What's outdated? How am I going to make this look good? And then struggling with Amazon and Oh, I have a whole new respect, you know, for formatters. So, and even communicating with uh, a cover artist was a whole other situation than I thought it was going to be. The difference in understanding between us of what I was saying, you can totally interpret things so differently on either side of that, you know, coin. So all of that was a huge misconception for me when we say self-publishing and it sounds like, oh, you just publish it. <laughs> you know, not really. There's a lot more to it. So, you know, it's kind of a simplistic thing once we're all into it. Like we all know what it is, but for anybody on, you know, who's thinking about it, look into it. Like really look into what it entails to so go in ready instead of panicking like I ended up doing. I think you hit it right there that right, that you think it's easy. I remember being in a couple of interviews and they asked me, Well, now that you've done it, what did you think was the your misconception? And I said, Well, I thought that writing would be the hard part, but that was the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> writing that's it. So true. Yes. Doing the rest of it and getting it out there to the world takes a lot of time and you guys, yes, meeting contacts and working with them and working with people. And it's really good if you can find good people to work with to Absolutely. help you journey. Well, you've recently published a novel on Kindle Vela and you started work on your next book. You also mentioned how you changed your publishing plan just to write the next Vela. And this was something you mentioned to me in an email. So I wanted to bring this up. So can you tell us about your work on Vela and why this changed your publishing plans? Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, because, you know, Kindle Vela has, is not that out there yet. Um, it's on Amazon, of course, and it is just a serialized form of writing. So you have episodes that you're writing and it's similar to chapters. You don't want to quite think of it as chapters when you write it, but it's similar. So you're publishing by episode. It's not a brand new idea by a long shot, but it is for Amazon. That is what I don't remember exactly when it came out, but I had been looking for something that I could get in on the ground floor of. I kept like missing everything. I had no interest in TikTok. I cannot make videos every day. I just can't be doing it. You know, it's intimidating to me. Things like that. I just kept not doing and thinking there's got to be something I can do, you know, get on the ground floor. And I saw Vela come out and was sort of interested, watched it for, you know, a few months, just a few months and then thought, you know what? I'm just going to I'm going to jump on it. I'm going to see what happens. Why not? And so I did. And I thought it would be a really good way to also test uh, writing historical fantasy. I have been really interested in writing some kind of fantasy. And since, you know, most of my work is in the Victorian era, it was mostly historical suspense. I thought, all right, let me do historical fantasy. So it's not just like a totally different genre, you know, epic fantasy separate from, you know, Victorian era and everything. That way I can keep my audience and maybe grow a bigger audience. So it was kind of like a test of Vela and what my readers would read and what other people might be interested in. So I started doing it and, you know, you're publishing at least once a week, you should be publishing in order to keep up your base, you know, keep your base interested, your reader base. And it was, it was tricky. I was having a great time writing it, but I had to make the time and the time is the toughest thing for me. And the thing that happened, which was really, really cool was I started saying, I need to be able to publish weekly. How am I going to manage this? And finally, for the first time in my life, I was able to just develop a way to write daily. It's funny because for years I had said, there's no way I can do it. And then all of a sudden when it kind of like came down to it, I could. So that was an interesting thing. It was sort of like the pressure was on and I managed it. And now I do have a solid everyday writing schedule. So that's something I didn't expect to happen to me from just using a particular publishing site, but it was doing well. And I was surprised like when I got my first check, you know, as we older people say, um, <laughs> you know, when I, when I first saw that, I was like, I'm making more on this immediately than I have usually, you know, made like when I've launched my first book, for example, definitely making more than that, making more than I usually make at a launch. And the numbers kept increasing. And I said, okay, I had a publishing plan to try publishing. It was again, a totally different genre, nanopunk. I'm trying, I just have a lot of ideas and I like to write them. So, I mean, you know, this is, I, that was, the path I was going to go down, I was going to try and publish really fast. And I said, why am I trying so hard to publish something like that? That's so far off from my brand. And I don't know how it's going to go when I've got something right here that's doing well. I need to pivot fast. And that's the beauty of being what we are. We can, we're not a company that needs to have meetings upon meetings and approvals and stuff. We can say, this is what's working. I'm just going to do that. So that's what I did. You know, I, my cover designer was at the end of designing one of my nanopunk covers. And I said, wait, wait. 
<laughs> hold on a second. This is going really well. We need to like turn, you know, I'll make a deposit on what I already did, but I would need to do the grimoire stuff. And he was like, let's go, you know? So that's kind of how it happened. And as I said, that's kind of the beauty of being small. You're your own CEO in a way. I can just say the is working. That's where the money is for me. I'm going in that direction. So with writing consistently, like every day and putting on an episode mm -hmm. every week, how are you handling the editing process part of that? I have an editor and she is, because it's like, it, these are short episodes there. Let's say the longest one is like 3,400 words. She can usually turn that around in a couple of days. So I just need to make sure that I'm, you know, writing it within a certain amount of days and that she has enough time. Now that was the, let me just clarify, that was the first book I wrote. That book is now complete on Kindle Vela. What I'm doing now for the second book is writing ahead. So I delayed the publication to July. I haven't decided on the date yet, but it's going to be in July. So that I can write a number of episodes. She doesn't have to rush. And I don't have to say, do you have it now? You know, <laughs> um, and you can just take it a little bit slower. And now I'm going to have six episodes already ready, publishing weekly. That's six weeks ahead of time. And then I can just write an episode per week. And if it takes me a week and a half, it's not going to be a big deal. So, you know, I did learn from that <laughs> for sure. You own your own editing company, Proof Positive, where you work one-on-one -on -one with authors as well as small presses as a freelance editor. What have you learned or what might have informed your own self-publishing process? That's a great question. It's interesting because as an editor, you'd think everything that you apply to editing, you must apply to writing, but it's, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's, you know, as you guys probably know, it's a lot easier to see something in other people's work than it is to see in your own. So constantly working on other people's work and being able to take it apart neutrally, like from an objective standpoint, really helped me be able to do that for my own work um, and be able to sort of distance myself from it. I used to need to take a big break. I would need, and this is advice from, you know, really for the majority of people, you write a book, you take a break, you come back to it and suddenly you see it differently. And it works really well for self-editing. And I've found that I have to do less of that. Not that I don't have to do it ever, but I have to do less of it because of all the time I've spent editing other people's work and, you know, looking at it so objectively and kind of more noting what I'm doing to their work that could be applied to mine. First, it's just sort of, you're looking at it as this is other people's work. This is other people's work. But then you start to look at it as, no, I, I really could apply this to mine. Actually, I have these same problems, you know, and it's, it's kind of funny that we don't always see that in our own selves, but um, it has definitely helped me look more objectively at my work and distance myself from it. And now I'm at the point where when I write an episode for Kindle Vela, for example, I can back off of it fast. Like the next day I can look at it from a fresh perspective and say, I don't need this sentence. I put that in because I did the research and I liked it. You know, there was no reason to have that. It used to be, I had to wait a month to be able to spot that. Now I'm doing it faster. And that has taken, I'm, I'll admit, it took years to get to that point. This is not an overnight thing at all. But um, at this point, it is easier. And still an editor will find stuff that I don't spot, of course, because it's my work. But it has helped with that for sure. So what are some issues writers should look for when first submitting their work to an editor, such as for a critique or a developmental edit? So when you first submit your uh, work to an editor, one of the things, and you might be surprised by this, one of the things I get, especially from new authors, is first drafts. I get a first draft and I mean, I'll be totally straightforward. You're wasting your money if you're going to send an editor a first draft because it has so many errors. It's not just about proofreading and copy editing. Like, you know, it's not just about the commas and the typos and stuff like that, but it's the consistency. It's characters that just disappear, things like that, you know, that you would probably see if you did a really good read-through of your novel before you sent it, a really good self-edit, as objective as it can be. It's difficult. I, I know that too, too from experience. But when people just send me a first draft, you know, sometimes I send it back and say, really, I mean, you are wasting your money. You know, you could, you could get a lot more out of my work if you will just do a round of self-edits. And sometimes they'll do it. And sometimes they say they don't care. And they just want me to do it anyway, which is difficult. Honestly, there's no way... And editor can catch everything when so much is off, right? So if you're focusing on the character consistency is way off and then the plot is way off and then the pace, there are like potholes, how can you fix the pacing when all of that is so off? You can't really because you don't know how the fixed version is going to read. So I can say to you the pacing is good but everything else is off. But then when you fix it, the pacing might be off, right? This is a common thing that I see, especially with new authors. Definitely don't do that. Go through your own work. Even if you're sick of it, just do it. And if you're sick of it, 
wait, you know, I know we all get impatient, but wait and then go through it again before you send it. And it, trust me, it will be so much more worth your money. You're going to spot things you had no idea were there and you're going to say, thank goodness I fixed that. Now we can focus on really important stuff. That's my biggest piece of advice. Yeah. So to go back to what you're saying that, you know, working as an editor has helped inform your own process. And I can definitely attest to that because I was a writing coach for many years and did a whole lot of editing for a lot of people. So I, I found things that I thought, well, I didn't like, you know, way certain sentences were constructed or how things were put together. I was like, okay, I'm going to avoid that when I do my writing. So I can mm -hmm. definitely see how that worked. But like you said, having an editor is still nice because you miss stuff in your own work every time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So why might a writer want a full critique of their manuscript before beginning editing with a developmental edit? Usually when you want to critique, it's because you're uncertain the manuscript in one way or another. You're looking at it and you're saying, I'm not really sure if this spot, you know, even works. I've definitely received that kind of a thing. Not sure if this is any good. I can't tell anymore. I've worked on it too much. Can you give me a general, you know, just a critique. Tell me what I need to fix overall before we get into the nitty gritty. And that can be absolutely worth it. There are people who go straight down the line of having, let's say, a critique and then a developmental edit and then a copy edit. There are people who come to me and are really so they're so professional and so well versed in writing and editing themselves that all they need is a copy edit and they don't need anything else you know it's going to be different for every single person but if you're going through your manuscript and you have doubts as to its validity or you know anything even close to that that's when you're looking for a critique you can get an overarching opinion you know this is what i'm seeing these are the major problems these are some of the smaller details that you're going to want to look at as you go through and edit you know, and it's typically what you're going to receive is a report. So, you know, you might get like track changes in there, comments, whatever, but you're definitely going to get a report, at least from my company, but I'm pretty sure everyone does that. And it's going to give you quite a lot of detail about, you know, some things that were really great and um, that, that are important to the genre, characters, anything like that. And then you're also going to receive the things that really need an overhaul. One of the biggest things I often find is that chapters are out of order. It flows for the writer, but from an outside perspective, the time between these chapters is weird, right? And you'll have like one chapter that's a month ago and then a chapter that's a week ago and then a chapter that actually goes back, but there isn't a purpose. Like there's no reason we skipped. And so the writer might think, oh yeah, there was a reason. But when somebody objectively looks at it, they're like, you, you'd really have to have a strong reason to have to go back and forth like that if you're not going to do it with the whole manuscript. You know, this isn't just a flashback, right? We're actually supposed to be going along in time naturally, but it's jumped back. You know, so it can be hard for an author to spot that kind of a thing, but very much easier for someone totally disconnected. So like, that's the kind of thing you're going to find in the critique. As we mentioned in your bio, you have worked as an acquisitions editor. Could you explain to us what that means to you and what exactly you do for that role? Yeah, sure. So as an acquisitions editor for a small press, basically you're going to be, as an author, sending me um, your manuscript directly, actually. And um, I'll be reading it and figuring out if I want to ask for the whole manuscript. Usually you're going to be sending me, you know, there's usually something on the website, um, send to, you know, the first four or five chapters, something along those lines. And um, I'll be reading it and seeing if it's something that I think could work for the small press. And then I'll ask for a full manuscript. You can send me the full manuscript. I might ask for more or, you know, uh, anything along the lines of, do you have a synopsis or, you know, something like that for the entire series? Anything along those lines can be asked for. So then I'm going to read the whole manuscript and I'm not going to be necessarily looking at nitty gritty stuff. I'm looking to see whether it matches the small press's purpose and whether what we want to see in an author is there. It could be that, you know, you're submitting something that's romance for a small press that handles romance, but maybe it's not quite, you know, the type of subgenre, excuse me, that we handle or it just doesn't really fit in terms of the writing style in a way we're going for fast pace and it's really really slow type of thing it may not be that it's bad if you're rejected you know this is the uh, you know a lot of authors especially beginning authors might think i got rejected that means my manuscript is no good it's not that it's no good it's just that it didn't work for this particular company and sometimes with acquisitions editors especially in small presses they'll write back and tell you what it is that you know was off for them so you know i've definitely seen um 
even for literary agents, they'll send something back and say, there's just not enough detail. Like there's not enough for the reader to grab hold of in here. Try again, you know, like when you flesh it out or something, it can be anything along those lines. But um, yeah, so basically, yes, you're going to send in the manuscript. I'm going to read it a certain percentage of the manuscript. I read it. I tell you if I want the full manuscript, and then I'm going to tell you whether or not this is going to work for the company. And then you may or may not receive an offer. So that's kind of like the basics of how it's working. And by the way, within the company, sometimes uh, editors do pass around a manuscript where they say, it's not for me, but is it for one of you? So that, that can happen as well. Are you comfortable discussing any publishing missteps or things you would have liked to have done differently? Yeah, I have a big one and I advise everyone against what I'm about to say. So when I first start, okay, so one thing you have to know about my personality is that I get super excited about something and then I just like pull everything over and just go for it. You know what I mean? And I don't take the time to really stop and think about it always. Sometimes I get just so excited, particularly with writing. And I used to make this mistake a lot. In the very beginning, it would be like, you know, with Anatomy of a Darkened Heart, I said, here's my publication date. I'm just, I just decided on a publication date. I did not put any thought into it. So you can see where this is going already. That that one didn't work out too badly. I had magically, by beginner's luck, I was able to make that publication date. Then I set... <laughs> Listen to this. You guys are going to crack up. Publication dates for like five other books after that. Not even outlines, you know, <laughs> just, I'm pretty sure this will make a lot of sense. You know, this, this works for me. You know, I was thinking at first I would have a few novelettes. Uh, I thought the second book would be, the second through the fourth book, I believe, would be a novelettes. And then I would have a final novel. And that would be the series. I am a pantser. I do not plot. I never know where something is going. So especially if you are a pantser, this is a big mistake. Danger signal, red flags stop now, you know, do not move ahead. <laughs> as soon as you get that excited, like, I'm sure I can do this thing. Stop. Okay. So this is what I did. And I said, I was going to publish this particular book, Lock and Key, which I later changed the uh, title to Brotherhood of Secrets. I said, I was going to publish that in a particular month. I discovered while I was writing that it was absolutely not going to be a novelette. It was a full length novel. There was no way this thing was going to be a novelette. It just wasn't working. And I saw where it was going and it was utterly different than what I thought, which is the problem problem with pantsing when you're trying to plan ahead. So I had to keep pushing back the date over and over again, two, three times, something like that. And that is just never good because you can always have people who lose interest. They think, ah, she's just going to keep pushing it back. Forget it. She doesn't know what she's doing. I'm on to somebody else. I'm not paying attention anymore. People can get annoyed, like genuinely annoyed with this kind of thing. So I did learn the hard way never to do that ever again. And, um, and I haven't. And the third book in the Dark Vitriana collection has actually taken me years to write. So it's a good thing that I did not plan another release date for that because I would have been putting it off for how many times now? Millions <laughs> by now, right? Years? It would have been a disaster. So this is my big flub. And I always advise people, be careful when you're planning your publication date. I see authors all the time plan it way too far in advance without knowing or without planning like gaps in between. If your editor gets sick, if your cover artist suddenly has to drop out, if someone quits their job and just isn't there anymore. So you may want to wait until a certain time in the process to, you, nobody likes to hear that, but like a certain point in the process, you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to publish. If you're super experienced, you may not have to do that. You probably know how it flows for you. But for especially beginner writers, publishing your first or second book, start thinking about what could go wrong here and do I have enough like space in there for mistakes and for people to get sick and just not be there. So that anyway, that's my big piece of advice and it was bad. It was not fun. <laughs> and I think to add to that, those who are experienced, they know how fast they can write and how, how to yeah. get done. They probably already also have an established team that they can rely on versus those of us who are just starting out and like, okay, am I going to be able to keep this editor for my next round? Yeah, it's probably easier for them to keep a hold of it. You know, I, I wish we would have thought of this question to ask you. So I'd like to ask you, can you tell us about the small press you work for and what kind of works they're looking for? Just in case of our listeners are interested in submitting to you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I no longer work there and it's only because I don't have the time. I loved working there. It's a brilliant small press. They're called City Owl Press and they're a romance press. So they do all different kinds of subgenres of romance. They're fabulous. They act like a traditional publisher. That's really their model. The people there are extremely kind. They're super helpful and they really know what they're doing with romance. I wish I had had the time and I hope that at some point I will have the time to go back because it was just such a, such a pleasure working there. You can go to their 
website. Just look up Study Owl Press. There's only one. And check out on their submissions page who is accepting. I think right now there's only one person who is accepting. They have an imprint as well called Mystic Owl. And I believe that's more like paranormal type stuff. Uh, but check it out to make sure that I got that right. Yeah, so always check the submissions page, see who's accepting, see what they're accepting and go for it with them. Because like I said, they're really the real deal. It can be tough to find small presses that um, really treat authors right. And if you have to pay for a small press, just note that that's vanity. It's it's a vanity press. You know, like it, it's a tough one to have to say because there are a lot of small presses that people like that you have to pay for, but it's no longer genuinely you being published by somebody else in the same way if you are paying for the editing and the cover and everything else, right? So that's the definition of vanity press. This place is a real deal. They're really, really good. As I said, they I think they, I know they accept a lot of subgenres and I, there's no way I'm going to remember them all, but it's everything from historical to paranormal. And I want to say even space type things. It's just absolutely, it's a lot of great stuff. So definitely check them out. I highly recommend them if you write romance. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, I, and I totally understand that. You know, I, I knew that as working as a writing coach, and I was also teaching college English and literature, I was helping everybody else be a better writer. I didn't have time to write myself. Mm -hmm. So I had to pull back from that. There's still part of me is like, well, maybe I could just still do some editing or something. And I thought it's, it's gone through my head. I don't know how many times in a month they'll do it every month. It'll go through. Maybe I can do some editing so I can, you know, because it's hard getting started as an author and making money right away. Oh, yeah. But I think, well, if I edit, I'm not going to have time to write. So. This is the tricky balance, isn't it? Yeah, we, we all want to like help each other too. And yeah. it can be tough to balance that for sure. Well, if you could only pass on one tip or trick to aspiring self-published writers, what would that be? There are like so many that I love to pass on to everyone. But one thing I would say is I hear a lot of authors say things along the lines of, I'm not good at marketing. And this is the excuse that I'm not going to market. And, you know, it's not my fault, right? So I'm not good at marketing either. I'm pretty bad. I try my best, but I'm not that great. <laughs> um, but, you know, for a while, I let that be sort of an excuse for myself. And then I started to realize I'm only hurting me. You know, all that's happening is I'm just not doing it. And it's not like people are flocking to me saying, that's okay we'll buy your book. Like that's not going to happen. So I started to realize it's up to me to get better at this stuff and stop just saying, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it. It can be very tiny steps. This doesn't just have to be marketing. What I'm right. What I'm saying is if you find yourself, if you catch yourself saying, I'm just not good at this and cannot do it. I mean, if it's something you want to can pay other people for, and you're willing to fine, that's great. But if it's not, and it's holding you back from the success you could be having, this is one to have like a serious sit down with yourself and say, what is it I'm not good at in marketing? Why am I not good at it? And what is really missing from the information I have? How can I improve that? And when we look at marketing, we see like a giant chunk of something, but marketing can be this. It can just be, my Instagram isn't doing too well. I wonder why. Let me look at it. Uh, what are people not liking? Hey, they really liked when I published these beautiful pictures, but they don't like when I just publish my book over and over and over again. Okay. That kind of gives me an insight. That's a chunk. You just did something there. You figured out what your audience likes and what they don't like. The tiny steps is how you start to become not necessarily an expert, but you start to gradually increase your knowledge in whatever it is that you're saying to yourself, I can't, I can't. So like my biggest piece of advice would definitely be whatever you're saying, I absolutely can't. That's holding me back. Start taking tiny chunks and start disassembling that belief because we actually all can do all this stuff. It just looks really complicated from the outside, but we can do it. We can absolutely do it. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice. You actually transitioned perfectly from publishing to marketing, which is associated with my next question. What marketing do you do for your already published novels and short stories? And as I said, so marketing isn't my strongest point, but I have been learning more and more. And one of the things I do is I attend any of those free like webinar types of things, you know, where I know it's like five days worth of, you know, hour, five hour <laughs> sessions and stuff. And it's tough to fit in. But these are the kinds of things I do when like I'm washing the dishes or something, you know, and I'm, I'm just listening and trying to learn. I like to think over time I'm improving. So I'm probably not going to say anything brand new here. Basically, a lot of what I do is is I'm looking around to see what other people are doing, what's working for them. I'm trying it on my page and it's interesting because I find a lot of what works for other people doesn't work at all for me. So I had somebody um, say to me with Kindle Vela, just you have to put your book cover up over and over and over. Just do that over and over and you know, you'll start getting reads. And it was the exact opposite. You know, it was just the total opposite. My Instagram page got abandoned. Nobody was looking at it. Nobody was liking anything. So what I typically do now, and it has taken 
taken me quite some time to figure this out. People seem to like to see pretty pictures that are original things that I own of the Victorian era. This is something it took me quite some time to figure out because I sort of was afraid of just drawing in people who like history. So apparently, you know, there is a pretty big crossover between those who like just, you know, things that take place in the Victorian era and who are actually like big history lovers. They do come together in the middle and I was kind of afraid they wouldn't, but they do. Through a lot of experimentation, I figured out that doing my own flat lays with all the stuff I, you know, collect and acquire around the Victorian era is what these people want to see. It sounds so obvious now that you might be sitting there saying like, duh, why didn't you think of that before? <laughs> you know, it's the Victorian era, you write in the Victorian era, why wouldn't you do that? But what I was doing before was looking at, as I said, other people and using what they were doing. It's a good jumping off point, but it didn't really work for my audience. So that's what I'm doing now that's working a lot better. And it transitions so much better into people buying my books and being interested, even just asking about them. Sometimes I'll get a message. Do you like write anything about this? You know, even though it says on my uh, bio that I'm an author, I'm still getting a message because all they saw was my post and they didn't click my bio. And they're saying, do you write stuff about this? Or like, what is it you like about this? They'll start asking questions. So one of the things that I do now that's working for me is publishing things like what I just said and answering, interacting with people who are interested in the period. It doesn't even have to be my book. It can just be the period. I'm establishing myself as more of an expert in the field. I hate saying that because there's definitely people out there that know more than I do, but an expert in the field. I know what I'm talking about and um, look at all this cool stuff. It's really working. When I started my, um, my Facebook group, I waited and waited and waited to start my Facebook group. I didn't know what to put in there. I was like, you know, this is what other people do. I'm not seeing many reactions to their stuff. Something isn't working there. Finally, I was like, let me try sharing my research. And this is what worked. This is what worked. People really liked it on my Patreon too. So that's what I'm doing. That's the marketing that's working. It's not even marketing my book. It's just marketing what I know, you know? So in addition to that, is there any other types of marketing that you've done that you would never want to do again, besides like doing things that don't work for you, like by looking at other people? Yeah, for me, and as I always say, like it's it's different for every single person. For me, I was trying really hard to market on YouTube. I was trying really hard to build my channel. The problem is that I don't have that much time to go and comment on other people's channels and watch their full videos and everything. And so obviously that's what any form of social media is. It's engagement. And that's how the algorithms all work. So I had put a lot of time into my YouTube channel. And for me, um, I couldn't post every day. I know that you need to post often for it to work out on YouTube. I had been posting once a week thinking that that would probably do it. And um, it just never worked for me. It didn't matter if I did live streams, sharing like updates about my book. It didn't matter, you know, if it was more pre-recorded type of stuff, talking about other books, anything like that. It just wasn't working. And again, I did find that when I was talking about my research, that seemed to do the best. But again, it takes time to gather that. It really does. And to then sit down and make a video as well was so time consuming. And I was getting nothing back on YouTube. I couldn't trace any sales back to it. Of course, they're not paying me. They ran off with the $30 I did make. <laughs> so, you know, um, for me personally, it was too much of an investment of time and it just did not reflect in my sales. So for me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the time into it, but you have to look at it for yourself. So you mentioned earlier about your marketing and how you found what worked for you. And I think that is a perfect thing to note that we've talked about here on the show. And I have actually, that was my one big collab I've had on my channel, author branding. How do you author brand, you know, yourself and reach readers versus other writers? And I think that what you're doing is is really great that you're you're reaching your readers by establishing your brand through your, um, your Victorian era. So I, I just wanted to comment that I thought it was really great that you've, you've hit that on that. And that's, I wish, I'm, I'm hoping I can do that at some point for myself and I haven't hit it yet. But. It's hard. <laughs> Again, another thing that took me years <laughs> to figure out. So Amazon doesn't seem to do any marketing for Kindle Vela from what we've been able to see. So how do you market your Vela stories or what tips could you pass on to those who might want to try Vela out? Yeah, Amazon really has a lot of improvement to do on Vela. It is in the baby stages. So, you know, right now this is still the ground floor, even though we're one or two years into it. Not really, I can't remember when they started exactly, but it's still the ground floor. They aren't investing a whole lot. I'm not sure if it's that they're trying to figure out whether it's worth it or what the deal is exactly, but you're right. They're really not advertising it. So it is up to us as the authors to spread the word about our work. And it's a little bit tricky. One of the best things 
things you can do is join any kind of group like Facebook group for Kindle Vela in particular. And those exist. There are Kindle Vela readers and writers groups, both separate and combined. And making sure that you publish your work on those is critical. It's really, really, really crucial. Everything I was doing before that was kind of okay. You know, it was, it was working relatively well. Um, I would post as I normally do on social media and mention the book instead of like putting it in people's faces too much, which I found my audience did not like at all. And I would also talk about uh, just what's coming up in the next episode. That's always a good thing. That worked particularly well on Twitter more than Instagram. So I was tracking like, where is this going down well? And where is it not really working? For me on Twitter, that seemed to draw in people who were interested in Bella. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe because Twitter is so fast paced and um, reading serialized fiction is fast paced. I couldn't say for sure, but that's like a quick analysis. It is a matter of pushing it yourself and joining those groups. That is really the thing that definitely works. As I said, before I joined those groups, I was doing okay and it was still worth my time. But once I joined those groups, started sharing my work, that was what did it. That's where the audience is. That's where people are looking to read Vela. If you find some other place that has serialized, you know, you can post something serialized in particular, that seems to maybe be the key, making sure that the people there are interested in serialized works and willing to kind of jump into this like token system that um, Vela has because it's a little bit different. And I think a lot of people might see that they have to do something differently when they pay for a book and say, Ugh, it's too much. I don't know what that means. Going into some place where you know people are interested in serialized fiction, I think that is very helpful. You're currently part of the interactive video cast Lurking for Legends, and I've also been a host on in the past on Writer Showcase. Do you see these ventures as adding value to your author platform, or are they strictly more towards your brand? Yeah, um, I do think that they're more towards my brand. I definitely, I can say with like 99% certainty, it's not about the sales when I do these things. It's about the brand and it is also about making connections. One of the things that's easy to forget when you're marketing, it's not always about how many books that I sell based on this effort. It can be, do people know my name and what do they associate it with? Do they turn to me to ask me a question even? Like, are you trying to become an expert indie author where people turn to you and say, how do I do this? Are you trying to establish yourself as someone who's an expert in the Victorian era? You know, what are you trying to accomplish when you do this kind of a thing, when you do like a podcast or video cast, even a blog? What are you trying to accomplish? And that should really guide what you're posting. So, you know, when I, I first, I was appearing on podcasts and I really enjoyed it. You know, somebody, one of my author friends kind of handed down to me his podcast, his video casts because he just didn't have the time anymore. And I took it over and I really, really liked it. And I was finding, at first I was frustrated. And I said, like, nobody's really buying my book based on this. I mentioned it in the beginning and I mentioned it at the end. Why is nobody buying it? Is this the wrong venue? Like, what is it? And I started to realize people, of course, are not attending so they can buy my book. That's not the purpose of a video cast or a podcast, is it? It's really so they can hear from the other author that you're interviewing. They're coming for the conversation and the information. So no, I'm not going to sell my book on this. <laughs> That's not what this is about. Maybe from something like this, where I'm, you know, more the focus, what we're doing right here, but not when I'm the host necessarily. I started to realize this is different. Okay, people are starting to say, can I be on your podcast? They're seeing me as a podcast host. This is becoming part of what I am to them. Great, you know, that's that's fantastic. I'm getting to know more authors and I'm making connections and sometimes I'm connecting them and it's fun. I'm really enjoying it. And during that time, um, like when we're sitting right here, I can just focus on all of you and I can focus on answering your questions and having a nice conversation. Whereas the rest, the day, it's very multitasking. And even while I'm writing, it's like, I have to research and now I have to fix this word. And now I have to go over here and check this and that and the other, you know, and you're jumping around. And I found that that was also just something that meant a lot to me personally. So it was not, it became both brand and personal satisfaction, something that felt really, really good to do. And then I moved into Writer Showcase, as you said, really enjoyed that and uh, moved into Lurking for Legends. And that's what I'm doing now. We have three uh, co-hosts just like you do. And I really enjoy it more that way than I actually did on my own because we all have different ideas and different opinions on what's important and what we want to ask and stuff. And so again, you know, this is establishing me as, you know, a video cast host, somebody who, you know, you can turn to for more exposure. You can maybe ask a little bit about publishing. And that's something I wanted also. I wanted to be able to help other authors. Yes, as an editor, but also just as somebody who's been around block and made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot of things. So there's actually a lot to 
<laughs> my doing video casts more than just, I hope you buy my book, you know, and I'm sure it is for all of you as well. I say it, it was definitely um, from a selfish perspective that we came up with the show that we wanted to know what's working for other authors. Sure. And then instead of just asking someone one-on-one -on -one and, you know, we keep the answer to ourselves and this way we get to share what we learned with everybody else as well. Yeah, exactly. And that feels really good. And you're contributing back to a community that probably helped you get your start. So it's, it's just really nice and helpful. And again, this is going to become at least a small part of each of your brands, which is, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah ben. All right. So you have a really beautiful and interactive website. So can you tell us a little bit about how it was designed? Did you do it yourself or did you hire someone to design your website? First, thank you. I really appreciate that. I did not do that myself. This is <laughs> one of those points where I would say I am not an expert. And at some point I had to admit that. And it's it can be tough for me to admit that kind of thing, honestly, because I like to be able to do things myself. I don't like to have to depend on others, but that's not a team spirit. <laughs> that's, that's just trying to be a mountain, right? And that's not going to help for self-publishing. So at first I had designed my own website and it was okay. You know, it wasn't bad for the time. Uh, I had looked around and I did what I was seeing elsewhere. It was not really converting too much traffic to buying. It was all right. But uh, I started to realize, you know, after a while I was looking around, looking around, I was like, my website looks really old. It's definitely an old style. I don't like it anymore. I don't think it even really represents me. And it's definitely no longer converting sales at all. So I started looking around and I found a fantastic designer. I hope you guys don't mind, but I'm just going to say it's uh, Con Lavery. His business is called Reveal Design. And he's so fantastic. I did try to work with a couple designers before and it was really not what I had hoped for. I got really upset with one of them where I knew more about it than he did. <laughs> so watch out, you know, there are definitely people who don't know what they're talking about, but they just have a nice website and it looks like they know what they're talking about. Don't be afraid ever, this is unsolicited advice, don't be afraid ever to say this no good. You know, you're not hearing what I'm saying or that's not quite it. I think we should break off here. You know, like this is what I had to do. With him, I had to demand my money back because it was just like literally I'm telling you I actually knew more so um, I found Khan and he was doing these beautiful websites and I talked to him about it and you know we walked through what I was looking for and it was so much better it was a very open process one of the things to look for if you can in a website designer is somebody who's willing to share with you how to update your site they're not money grabbing where they're like you're gonna have to pay me hundreds to update something small no and that's that's not good that was my first designer and she said don't touch anything you'll break it and i was like oh my god <laughs> like i can't touch anything ah! and i was so scared because i didn't know but you know con was like that's not true you know that's, that's not how it works and here's how to actually you know do this kind of stuff let me walk you through it and i was like okay so this is a trustworthy person there are designers out there who will do that for you and maybe you do have to pay them an hourly fee for um, like a coaching session almost so that you can do things for yourself in the future if you don't want to have to say like I need this updated how much is it going to cost like whatever he really did everything there for me he gave me a number of themes to look at I looked at them I said you know I still wanted it to be unique to me I didn't want it to look like any you know just a whole bunch of other sites necessarily of course it's going to have some things about it that will be I wanted it to be a little bit different so we found it kind of like I picked it he said yes this is doable I can adjust it in this way the other way blah 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 and we went ahead with it I had so many questions and he answered all of them, which was another thing I wasn't used to. It was fantastic. And I ended up with this super, like you said, an interactive website that is really much easier to navigate, much simpler than my old one. And I actually know how to edit it. So I can actually work with it myself. And anything that I don't understand uh, is just beyond me. And I don't have the time to spend grasping. What do I do here? What does this even mean? I can turn to him and just say, can you just do this for me? I don't know what it is. <laughs> can you just please help me with this? And he'll just do it. He's very fast too. So that's why I sing his praises because I had such a bad experience in the past. So, oh my God, I am so very thankful that you said his name on this recorded podcast so I can go back and look it up because I am, my website still only has my first book on it and I now have three books out because I'm afraid I'm going to break something. Yes, yes. 
And I did hire another person to help me update it for the second book. And she was like messing it all up. And I said, stop. And I asked for my money back and she gave it to me. So my Good. website is still where it's at from my first book. And so I, I think I'm going to look into your guy and see if I can get a better website going for me. Good, good. I hope it works out for you. He's fantastic. So you also sell books directly from your site, which I think is phenomenal. I'm really looking into that for my future of my books. And it's something many well-established indie authors talk about. I've heard a lot of it on um, podcasts. So how did you make the decision to sell direct? And can you tell us about the process of setting it up? And like, like what tools do you use? Sure. Yeah. I've always sold direct to some degree. So when, even when I did my own website, I did figure out how to have like a PayPal set up there so that I could sell directly to authors and keep more of the money for myself as opposed to Amazon. And I also was interested in delivering a unique experience. I really wanted to send my books and have people wowed by them. And so I came up with a whole thing where I actually wrap the books in a, a wrapping paper that matches the theme of the book. So the first book is wrapped in a black and white damask wallpaper, which does appear in the book, which I thought was just like so much fun. I couldn't resist it. And um, like black ribbon. And, you know, for the second book, I do some hand stamping on the paper and there's a little charm that comes with it. I wanted it to be an experience that you can't get on Amazon. So that was part of my purpose in selling direct. And then when Khan redesigned my website, I had said like, how, how can I go about doing this? I'd like to maintain selling direct, but I don't want it to do it the way I was. I think it's confusing and a little convoluted. And so he recommended WooCommerce, which is a super, super common app to use. It works really well with WordPress sites in case you use WordPress. So he recommended that and he he did the setup for me. I could not have done it on my own. I'm sure that there are people who can. I don't know that it's that complicated, but I was afraid of making some kind of silly mistake and having things not connected right. So I asked him to do it and he did. And then it was just a matter of going through and figuring out like the details of what needed to be there and what didn't need to be there. There's like a lot of extra stuff in the background of these kinds of apps that you can turn on and off or choose whether you want to have them working. I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head, but it's just not coming to me right now. But you know, that part I did myself, but um, the rest really, you know, con set it up. It was fast and easy and it's very easy for the customer. So the one thing I'll recommend is go through the process yourself after it's set up, make sure it's not buggy. Something wasn't connected right. And I didn't understand what, but you know, I just sent it over to con. He figured it out. It was fixed quickly. I didn't have to deal with it. But I could have lost sales if I hadn't done that. So just make sure you test things for yourself. Make sure that they're running properly. And um, yeah, and that's really all there was to it. People do order from there. I, you know, like I said, Vela is doing the best for me, but they do order directly from there. And uh, the page is so clean and nice. And uh, it, it looks um, more like something professional that you would buy from. Something trustworthy because, you know, it's an app that knows what it's doing <laughs> with, uh, with selling direct to customers. Cool, cool. That's so wonderful. How do you drive traffic to your website or to a specific page within your website, such as your own purchasing service? Sure. Yeah. I actually do it in a semi-indirect way. I found that I was paying attention to, you know, my analytics and I found that people were really coming to my site for a select few things. I had been doing interviews with authors. It was not getting me traction. I had tried a couple of other things too, uh, kind of broad things, stroke things. They weren't working. So finally I found that doing book reviews on my site was getting me views. Very interesting. Not what I would have expected for an author's site. Right? but it's working. And if it's working, I'm not going to not do it. So I started realizing, okay, this is something I need to keep up consistently or as consistently as I can. I'm a slow pleasure reader. I read all day. That's my job. So by the time I get at night, I can only read so fast, but putting up those book reviews really drew people in. Also, which will not surprise you now, putting up interesting things having to do with the Victorian times. So I had done a lot of research. I was looking through Victorian newspapers and I was like, you know, this is just such interesting stuff. I've got to share this somewhere. And I started sharing it both on Instagram. Actually, it was on social media in general and on my website. And I was surprised to see people were coming to my website for these things. Really, really surprised because it's not like the topics were very trendy at all. So, huh, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have key terms that people are, you'd think of people looking up all the time, but it was drawing them in. And another thing can be the Lurking for Legends video casts, but how I draw them to buy my book is basically I, I have like the book review, you know, which I put on Goodreads and then 
I take their HTML and I put it on my blog to make it just really easy for me. At the bottom, I say something like, let's say I read a suspense book. I try to read within what I research or what I write mostly. And that way, when I leave a review on my site, it suits my brand. So if I leave a suspense book review, I write suspense. Are you interested in more suspense? Read my books, you know, click down below and go to this page or that page. And I have seen that I get specifically, interestingly, they're on my website. My books are right there, right over there, but they buy from Amazon for some reason. <laughs> so that's fine. I still make the money. It doesn't matter. You know, it might just be that they don't know me yet and they want to buy from a trusted site or something like that. So that's how I actually do it. And it's been working really well. Sometimes I'll put a subscribe to my newsletter at the bottom. It really doesn't work as well as putting my books at the bottom. That's just me. It, it could be that it works better for you to put a newsletter at the bottom, but I've found that putting my books works pretty well. So that's really how I drive traffic and people start clicking around from there to different pages, of course. So I draw them in with the blog. I don't even have a follow on my blog at the moment. I really just, I just draw them in with the topics. It's not what I would have ever expected, but it works. So if you could only pass on one marketing tip or trick to newly um, self-published authors, what would it be? I guess it would be to really experiment and be unafraid to pivot. So I mentioned pivoting before, and I just want to repeat that one of the best parts of self-publishing, we call it indie publishing, stands for independent. We're independent and we can do, you know, what we need to do at any given moment. And, you know, really taking advantage of that is important. It can be just important to stick with something to make sure that it works or doesn't work. If you build a YouTube channel, don't quit next week because you didn't get the views. Obviously, you need to stick with that. But if you see something is working, you can pivot in that direction. If you are, you know, suddenly, if you're posting on your Instagram or somewhere else, it happens to me mostly with Instagram. That's why I keep mentioning it. If you post, you know, you start posting something in particular to your Instagram and your, uh, you know, engagement tanks and it stays tanked, pivot fast, you know. I mean, you don't want to fall totally out of the algorithm. So like, these are the kinds of things where we can just change on, you know, just, just right like that in a, in a second, we can change. That's our greatest strength really to be able to just say, forget it. This ad on Amazon isn't working. Stop. You know, <laughs> that's the end of that. I'm, I'm just not going to spend any more money as opposed to a company where you've got to get the votes and you got to have the meetings and all those kind of stuff. I came to appreciate this a lot because I worked for a corporation. And as you can imagine, everything we did took forever. So <laughs> it's like, you know, being able to just change like that and switch up the marketing when you need to. Brilliant. Awesome. I need to change the cover. Change it right now. No problem. <laughs> Definitely the joy of being an independent author that you can change. Mm -hmm. And even when it comes to like mistakes and you realize, oh, well, I misspelled that word. You can easily just go in there and change it. Um, yes. So you don't have to wait for anybody else right, to, right. to do that. Exactly. Or not have it done because I've heard on a few podcasts of traditionally published authors who they'll find a mistake in the book and they'll tell their publisher and they're like, we're not going to change it because but oh. I'm like, oh my gosh, I would, I'd be freaking out if that was my book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been pain, like physical pain. <laughs> yes. All right, so we're going to transition from your marketing to your writing life and your works. So how do you balance your time between writing, your video cast, and your business as an editor? This is never easy. And I don't have any kind of super easy answer. Um, one of the things the corporate world did to me was absolutely ruin my focus. So multitasking is both my strength and the bane of my existence. <laughs> it's something that uh, my brain has a tough time switching out of, uh, which can be hard, but it is what it is. So, I mean, what I do is I try to set aside, for example, like, you, you know, now that um, with Vela, it has changed the way I put aside time for writing before. I was like, there's no way I don't have the time. Now I've got myself waking up early every day to write. And believe me, I am aware if you work one of those jobs where you wake up at 5 a.m., that's not doable. <laughs> I get it. But it's great if you can figure out where you can fit in that time. Leaving it to chance, sometimes you have to. It depends on your, your job and your life. But if you can figure something out where you can depend on that time, that's obviously the easiest way to manage your time. So, you know, for me, like I said, I get up an hour early every day and I write. And that's all I do. I don't check my email. I don't look at social media. I get involved in nothing until I write. I used to think I was a night writer and um, 
I thought I couldn't write in the morning until I started saying, that's the only time I have. And I'm kind of like unhindered by the rest of the day. There's no stress that has touched me yet. There's no uncertainty or confusion or anything like that about what's going on here or, you know, who said what on uh, this social media. And oh my God, that press is going under, you know, none of this kind of stuff that distracts us. You know, I just go in and I start writing. I turn on my music and that's it. And it really works for me. So that is how I separate out my writing time. If I get no other time, that's okay. I've already had it. So then, you know, the majority of the rest of my day is spent editing and that's my job. So that's how I make sure it gets done. I spend most of the day doing it. And then the video cast, luckily in the past, it used to be that I was in charge of everything. So the editing is the majority of my day. And then I go into the video cast and the video cast, as you know, I said, now we have three co-hosts for Lurking for Legends. So that leaves me not having to know everything myself. It used to be me as the only co-host. And that was okay, but it's a lot of pressure on the host. And I used to have to like do everything. I used to come up with the graphics and do all the marketing and put up an event and do the everything. It was a lot of work. And I started to question, is it worth the time? Can I spend this time anymore? You know, I'm not really sure how to manage that when I've got so much else going on. It was cutting hugely into my writing time. I had almost none left. Um, so when, you know, it was actually Richard Stevens, his, his podcast, his, his idea. So um, he had approached me and asked if I would be a co-host. And I had said, I don't think I can do that because it takes too much time. And he said, no, no, I actually have uh, an amazing person who's going to be doing all stuff in the background. Yes. <laughs> now I'm in. Okay. That's how I'm able to manage the time now. That being said, like I said, I was on the verge of quitting because it was too much for my schedule. So sometimes we have to make these hard decisions. Sometimes there isn't a way to manage your time better. I don't want to burn out, you know? So like, if I don't want to burn out, I have to take care of myself and I have to recognize when something is too much. So I'm very happy that there was a solution and I only have to spend a certain amount of time now on the video casts, getting to know the guests and coming up with questions. And, and it's a pleasure now instead of pressure. All that is to say that if you can structure your time like this, this is what I'm doing. That's perfect. It's ideal. If you can stop with the multitasking and do like the Pomodoro method or something and set your alarm and say, I'm going to write for an hour. Okay. That hour is up. I'm moving on to editing. I'm going to edit for an hour. Okay. That time is up. Now I'm moving on. You know, like that's great because your brain starts to say, okay, we can do this. You know, this is the time for this. This is the time for that. That's ideal when you discover something that isn't working, it's okay. Like it's okay to step away if you have to, if you can't do something, it's hard, but grind culture is ugly and it can really destroy, you know, you can lead to burnout. So manage your time as best you can basically is my answer. So for your fiction work, what comes first for you? The characters, the setting, or the plot? I know you mentioned you were a pantser. So how <laughs> does that process work? It is definitely the characters. It's definitely the characters. For me, everything is about the characters and it all relies on the characters. They lead me a hundred percent. So, you know, the setting can be important. I am not a super descriptive person. I can appreciate it in other books, but I also get bored by it easily if it's too much. Like there isn't a direct point to it. I'm not going to like it too much. So for my own tastes, I'm definitely a more to the point writer with only the description that needs to be there. You know, for fantasy, this setting is a lot more important and I put quite a lot more effort into, into it there. So it's going to depend on your genre. But um, yeah, with the characters, that's what comes to me first. Sometimes the world does. Um, I'll give you an example. I actually start writing with almost nothing. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. I'll come up with this general vibe in my head for something. It's no more specific than that. So that's when I start putting it down on paper and it starts with the characters. That means because I'm a pantser, a lot of the time I write something that is way off base, way off base. It's like a totally different novel until I get toward about two thirds through it. Then it really starts to become what it's going to become. From that point on, I start to really, really get the feel for what is really the point that I'm trying to get at? Who are these characters actually? It actually takes me through the first draft to get to that point. Then I go back and the second draft is rewriting it. I rewrite. And a lot of times I will rewrite even through the two thirds where I knew what I was doing. That's the part that makes it hard for me to do like a rapid release schedule. I've read so many people who say, if you're going to do rapid release, you need to be able to plot. Used to be a pantser. Now I'm a plotter. Um, so I know there are ways you can learn that. I stubbornly have not learned that yet. <laughs> I have stuck with my pantsing ways and um, this is, you know, what I'm doing right now. And I love it. I really enjoy it. 
it. Even the uncertainty of it is fun. I don't know exactly how it's going to end. I don't know exactly how it's going to straighten itself out. And a lot of times while I'm writing, I'll write something that is so recognizable from a movie. It's not even funny. And I have to just leave it and just move on and just quickly write my way through it. And then I go back and I say, oh yeah, that, no, no, <laughs> that's not, that's not at all what we were doing. I just needed to get through that point. That's how the characters lead me. They mess around with me a lot though. I'll tell you, they really do. They, they mislead me a lot. <laughs> and then by the end, finally, I'm like, okay, now I get you. Okay, here we go. And that's how it worked for me. So I would say I was a pantser all my writing life until I decided I was going to make this a career. And I thought, well, I kind of need a plan if I'm going to put out so many books by a certain time period. And I didn't sure. set any hard dates. So I didn't make that mistake of setting hard dates, but I did have in my head, okay, by this year, I would like to have this between this many and this many books. And so I, I kind of, I'm more of a planter now. So I know how my books are going to start. I know how the series in the book is going to end. So I know each book and the, how it's going to end and how the whole series will end. But then in between all of that's discovery writing. And I love that. And my, mm -hmm. my, Characters mislead me all the time. <laughs> so I'm like, really? Why would you choose that when we need to get to that point over there? <laughs> right? Right? It can change the whole end. It's crazy. I don't know what they're doing, but they they know what they're doing and it always works out well. Yes. So I know you said that your publishing plan has changed now with Kindle Vela. So it, do you consider it a book on Kindle Vela or is it because um, it's episodes? They still consider it a whole mm -hmm. book on there. Right. You're writing a book through episodes. So, right. you know, technically, like some people talk about it in terms of chapters and they say like you're publishing a chapter a week. That is slightly off they, because not all chapters are that exciting, right? In a book, you can have chapters that really blow down and you're learning about people and stuff. With Kindle Vela, with any serialized writing, you need to keep it moving always. It needs to keep moving. You can't slow down too much, you know, to a degree, obviously. But every chapter has to kind of start and end with a bang in a way. You know, I saw someone describe it once as each episode is its own thriller novel in a way. And uh, that's kind of true. You need to really have a good arc in each episode. The way that I sort of strategize it is to always have a crescendo. This is how I imagine every single episode that I write. So it starts with what, where we left off and then we go you know, and it has to keep chugging along and waste no time, absolutely no time until we get to the end. So this is not the best platform for something like literary fiction, I would say, where there's a lot of time you need to spend time on metaphors and, you know, like all kinds of broadening that might add up in the end, but not necessarily in the moment. Anything like that, not sure how well that would go over. So the pacing is super, super, super important when you're doing Vela. And I have noticed that the genres will be unsurprising to you that do the best is number one romance. I think yeah. we all knew that without me saying it. And um, also fantasy, anything really fast paced is going to do really well. So what are you working on next then for your Kindle Vela book that you're going to be putting out? And when will it come out? I think you, well, you did kind of mention that already, didn't you? You have an idea for later this year. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is um, you also, you asked if it was a book and I don't think I quite answered that. It is a book, but you can also, after a certain amount of time, I think it's something like 30 days, publish it as a regular full length novel on Amazon uh, and paperback. So I can't recall the terms about going wide with it, but anyway, you can do that. So what's coming next is book two in Grimoire. So the first book was called Grimoire Society of Dark Acts. Don't have a title yet for the second book. It was a big struggle for me. I don't know why, but anyway, it's, it has to do with the marketing mostly. So still trying to decide on the title, but it will be starting to release in July. I don't have a date yet because I need the cover from my cover designer. Kindle Vela covers are little circles. So they're not the same as having to have a huge cover. And FYI, I did publish the first one with, I wanted to spend as little money as possible so that if it failed totally, I wouldn't just lose that money. I bought a $1 Canva image and that's my cover for the first one. And um, it was fine. Now for the second one, I would like a designed one and we'll see if that even changes. It's going to start coming out in July, depending on when I have my cover ready. I will definitely have six episodes in the bag. It's going to be weekly. This is a series that I don't know how long it's going to go on. I'm building a world that I really want to be so expansive that it can just keep going. I'm really enjoying it. And it seems like my readers are enjoying it and new readers are coming in as well. So this seems to be a good direction for me. So look for it in July for sure. So that's great. So when this episode airs, it will hopefully already be out and have several episodes already yes. out. Yeah, it'll, well, yeah, we'll be way into it by then. That'll be perfect. Well, you've answered all of our questions, but before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and purchase your books? 
Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. You had awesome questions. I really enjoyed talking to all of you. This is fabulous. So you can find me at uh, my website, christystratus.com, and you can buy my books directly from there. As you know, you will, you probably know already, you'll get them gift wrapped and they're going to be a whole experience for you. Signed, I include a card, the whole deal. So it's a lot of fun. And then you can also find them, of course, on Amazon and I am wide. You can find them on Kobo. You can find them Barnes and Noble, all kinds of places. Apple iBooks, pretty much anywhere you can find them. And you can find me if you're interested in some exclusive stuff. If you want to hear some really cool Victorian research types of stuff, if you want to see where my ideas are coming from, if you want to have first access to all of the Grimoire episodes, you can join my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Christy Stratus. And otherwise I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I have a Pinterest board specifically for Grimoire and, uh, Facebook. I'm in a lot of platforms, but not TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> I won't be joining TikTok anytime soon. So please join me elsewhere. It's always just under my name. And uh, I, I definitely hope to see you there. Thank you so much again. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I was especially grateful to learn that you were trying Kindle out and that you had tried it and got some results on it because that's where I'm looking for next. So um, I was surprised and, and happy when you said, hey, I'm on Kindle Vella. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely worth a try, especially if your genre works for it. And I write fantasy, so hopefully that will work. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much to our listeners and our viewers today. October 15th, we'll have science fiction and fantasy author Rod Van Blake, and that will be it for today.